rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Times Business Podcast in which we'll be looking ahead to the stories and events that could move markets in the coming days. I'm Robert Miller. That means we'll be talking about the minutes from the very recent Bank of England's meeting on interest rates, plus what's in store on the inflation front. And there's a trio of well-known retailers reporting their latest results, along with Royal Mail, National Grid, Babcock and Kinetic. Lots of heavyweights there. I'm joined by Philip Aldrich, our economics editor and columnist, Andrew Clark, the deputy business editor, and Robert Lee, our industrial editor. Welcome to you all. Philip, let's start with you. And before looking ahead to the Bank of England uh, minutes... Mark Carney has called on the government for a speedy resolution, if I could put it that way, to Britain's membership of the European Union. We all appreciate where he's coming from, but has he crossed the line as governor between being an independent monetary policymaker and clearly what's a political matter? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, Robert. Uh, it's always important for the Bank of England to remain as politically neutral as possible because it, you know, it has its independence and its credibility to protect. And he couched the his position on uh, on Europe, on the referendum on Europe, very carefully. Uh, it's it, he's, He sees it as an economic argument because uncertainty will delay business investment. Uh, he did say at the Inflation Report press conference that if there is signs that the referendum is, is beginning to weigh on growth, then uh, it, you know it, it can have an impact on rate decisions. So he so he draws he, he's drawn the political subject into the ec- economic sphere. The thing is, he keeps on doing this. He, we've had it with the European Union, uh, with the eurozone. He he was giving uh, politicians in Europe a bit of a lecture uh, six months ago about how to fix uh, how to fix the euro. And recently he's just been, you know, they've done some analysis on the impact of immigration on uh, wages in the UK. Again, a, a hugely political issue that, uh, that the, the Bank of England has, has deliberately seemed to wade into. Andrew, let me bring you in there. Do you think he's being overly political? Well, it does make me wonder, actually, uh, because uh, to date, Osborne and Carney have been uh, have been pretty close. They've been kind of best mates, and of course, Osborne. It was Osborne who plucked Mark Carney out of uh, Ottawa and got him over to the UK as surprise choice for governor. So, I wonder whether there might be a conspiracy theory here, whereby the Tories would quite like to bring the referendum forward and it gives them a bit of political cover if they were to do that, to have someone like the Governor of the Bank of England suggesting it would be a good idea. Do you think so, Phil? I mean, they obviously talk a lot, uh, so it's it's entirely plausible. You know, we'd have to wait for the diaries to come out to find out whether it was the case. Bob, it matters to the companies you look at, particularly as industrial editor. I mean, we were going to be looking up coming up Royal Mail, uh, National Grid, Babcock. They all rely on government dis- defence spending and, and budgets in one way or another. From their point of view, is Carney doing the right thing? 
I think the governor's probably reflecting what he's hearing from the likes of the CBI, the EEF, the Manufacturers Organisation, and the ADS, which is the Aerospace and Defence Organisation. All these uh, uh, lobby groups are massively pro-European as long as there's uh, EU uh, reform. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if he was actually reflecting what they're saying. Uh, we're coming to a situation where uh, all these organisations will be putting the pressure on the government to make some form of decision. An early referendum is plainly in everybody's interests. And uh, at some stage, uh, the, the, the new government's going to make, have to make a decision on that. Is this going to have, Andrew, a short-term effect on consumer confidence, do you think? More uncertainty. I don't, I'm a bit sceptical of that, to be honest, because there isn't much evidence that uncertainty over the election hit uh, consumer confidence, particularly, I mean, if you look at things like retail spending, footfall and uh, till receipts at, at the shops, weather patterns are much more significant in determining what, how much people are spending than uh, fears over an election or a referendum. That, that's my personal view. The issue of whether he's, he's getting a little too political, there, there was an aside that he made which, which sort of hinted that he definitely would like us to stay in the European Union. Again, he'll, he'll say that, he'll probably say when, it, when push comes to shove, because I, I, I'm sure at some point, like he did in, with Scotland, the governor's going to come out and give a speech on this. Um, uh, it will be, again, it's dangerous political ground to start, to start putting his cards on the table so, so early, or even signalling what his cards might look like. Back on, the, on, on the, the, the safer ground, perhaps, of interest rate minutes, I mean, is there going to be any shock in there that we don't already know? We, we had a hint, didn't we, already, that it's going to be almost a year before they're raised again. Can people now plan ahead with certainty? Well, the the minutes are unlikely to throw up any great surprises. We've uh, we've had interest rates at zero point five percent for for uh, what is it now seven years um, almost. The, uh, the 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 minutes are bound to show that there was near unanimous or totally unanimous uh, position on holding rates in this uh, in this particular uh, instance. Obviously, the the vote was delayed a couple of days until after the uh, after the election. That was there was a lot more clarity because we had a we have a majority Tory government so it's possible that the the ones who were you know worried about the jitters that might have been caused by a hung parliament so the two that Ian McCafferty and Martin Wheel who were previously voting for rate rises they may have returned to that position I, I suspect it's perhaps a little early for, for them to do that so I don't think we'll see any surprises the only thing which is worth looking out for in there I, I reckon is um, is the sterling exchange rate because um, sterling's up something you know is up at a seven year high um, at, the, at the moment and, and and when it's hit this kind of level before the the governor has wondered whether it's, it's going to have a sort of de- deleterious effect on economic growth so there might be some mention about how sterling is too strong any knock-on effect to inf- the inflation figures do you think well, the inflation figures actually the, the bank is expecting them to be n- minus to be negative to be minus 0.1 percent uh, that's their own forecast um for for inflation in for tuesday's numbers after that we get back into um positive inflation yeah i mean it's it's based i I don't think there's any impact there's any effect on inflation but inflation is um is expected to remain pretty low is that good news andrew moving on to you and some of the companies that are reporting we've got marks and spencers burberry and mother care how's that going to play out in in the numbers we're going to hear from them as retailers let's start with m&s at M&S, the story is really all about fashion. Um, the food side has been uh, going along quite nicely despite a supermarket price war. But uh, for a number of years, uh, Marks & Spencer has been losing sales in fashion, particularly women's wear. There have been a few signs recently that things are picking up and they had a fashion show just a couple of weeks ago to show off their 
autumn winter collection. I believe you went. I did actually go, yes. And uh, yes, I, I must admit, I don't have the expertise of some of my fashion writer colleagues, but there was, I'm told, a leopard skin coat that that attracted the attention of uh, of the uh, glitterati um, and could be the next big thing. This follows hot on the heels of a suede skirt that people were going on about a few months ago. So uh, Marks and Spencer just beginning to make a splash in that fashion world again, which is what they've been trying to do for a number of years. Are they squeezed on, on, on the food front between the sort of people talking about waitrose and at the other end, the discounters? Do they get affected? Because the food has always seemed to be at least a bright spot and sometimes a pretty dire world for Marks and Spencers. They've actually been doing quite well on food. They're slightly above the fray on that one. So uh, Tesco and Sainsbury very much being squeezed by competition from Aldi and Lidl. But Marks and Spencer, um, a slightly more upmarket customer base. People tend not to do their entire grocery shopping there. They go there for little treats. Um, and that market has still been quite quite solid. So they're, they're, they're all right on food, really. All in all, we should get a reasonably positive message from them. Well... Hope so, and I think Mark Bolland, the chief executive there, needs a positive. Uh, uh, he does, uh, doesn't he? Because he I, I, he set himself uh, three years to turn around the business, and uh, he then had to admit that it was going to take a little bit longer than that. He really needs to show some signs that he's beginning to deliver lasting change there. I mean, talking about change, moving on to Burberry, they have had phenomenal success haven't they but this is probably what the first year with Christopher Bailey in charge how's that going to work out it's the first year yes since um, Christopher Bailey took over from Angela Arendt uh, uh, they they swapped places well Arendt's left in uh, May last year and Burberry is still uh, riding the wave of East Asian excitement about Western brands um, so um, they're doing quite well in ponchos and their traditional trench coats they, they pre-announced their sales figure uh, a few months ago, the second half sales were up 10% to £1.4 billion. That's a very healthy number, particularly in the Americas, where sales were up 18%. Um, so, uh, really, Christopher Bailey has had a good first year. And Mothercare. Mothercare has been a very rough ride for investors in Mothercare. Uh, Mothercare had to tap uh, shareholders for £100 million in a rescue rights issue back in October, admitting that they would breach their banking covenants unless they got the money. Mark Newton-Jones, the chief executive there, has has been um, had quite a radical restructuring programme. He shut lots of stores, um, desperately trying to uh, bring the loss-making UK business uh, in line with um, its foreign stores which is doing quite well investors must now be looking at the share price it's £2.24 um, and a year ago you had a takeover approach from American company Destination Maternity which was willing to pay £3 so not been a great a great one for shareholders that. No, ouch. Bob moving on to you, Royal Mail first of all, uh, Whistle recently seemed to have been knocked out of contention does this leave them leaders in the field by default? Uh, well, they are anyway. They're the uh, the dominant uh, privatised former state monopoly. Royal Mail is way much more about uh, the, the delivery of um, Andrew's suede skirts and leopard skin coats because uh, it's about the parcels market, which is uh, uh, where Royal Mail's growth is going to be. It's had uh, issues there because uh, at privatisation, we were uh, led to believe that because uh, um, we're all doing so much internet shopping that uh, Royal Mail would be boom, boom on this. They've actually been delivering 
uh, just uh, 3% uh, per annum uh, growth in parcels, and that's in the volumes. And actually, in the revenues, it's been flat because there's so much competition that everyone's under, undercutting each other. So Royal Mail's had some sort of issues in, that, in, in growing that parcels market. Back to your point about Whistle. Whistle was high profile, but sort of a small part of the market in general. Whistle, which is the old uh, TNT post owned by the uh, the Dutch uh, state post office, uh, Post NL, they were trialling and then actually uh, rolled out door-to-door deliveries uh, in West London, in Manchester and Liverpool, delivering the, the sort of things where you get your, your Sky invoice or your uh, Santander or Barclays or your, your, your energy statement. And it was sort of um, uh, seen as uh, something uh, of a gimmick. They were, they were delivering just three Three days a week, um, there were terrible stories that uh, post was getting dumped in rivers and what have you. Uh, some of the staff, or a lot of the staff, were on zero hours contracts. But anyway, this is all unwound. It needed more investment to roll out to get to sort of uh, economies of scale. A big private equity investor, an arm of Lloyd's Bank, pulled out from that investment, um, and Post NL uh, turned around and said they didn't want to invest any more in this. So Whistle was moved out of this, leaving Royal Mail as uh, the dominant and now uh, only a single delivery of uh, letters to your door. Bob, can I ask, do you, I mean, do you think that Royal Mail is, at the end of the day, just a natural monopoly? All this stuff about trying to inject competition into the market, um, is, it, is it a fool's errand? Should we just accept the fact that delivering posts to households is, is a natural monopoly? I think in the actual delivery of letters, of junk mail, of, of various things, it probably is a natural delivery, because a natural monopoly, because uh, anyone else wanting to come into the market just have to invest a huge amount. There is a huge amount of competition in this market, already i mean and whistle is doing that uh, whereby it's taking business customers uh, off royal mail so the, the aforementioned and uh, uh, various other big corporates actually give their business post the post that comes into into your door uh, to companies like whistle and other companies like uk mail and those companies sort it and then they actually put it into the royal mail network for that final mile delivery with the postman that you know and that's probably where as you say that's where the natural monopoly is but there's a huge amount of competition in there so Although a small part of the market was very good news for Royal Mail with Whistle pulling out, it's still got a huge amount of uh, other issues and competition to deal with. How's the share price doing with regard to the to its uh, privatisation price? Uh, it floated at 3.30. Uh, of course, uh, famously went above six quid. Um, uh, and everyone uh, wondering whether Vince Cable had made a huge hash of things. That share price came back and uh, it was down to not much more than four quid uh, earlier uh, uh, after that. Uh, it's bound back up at five pounds, um, which a lot of people think is probably fair value. Again, it's, it, it's quite volatile. I mean, when Whistle pulled out of the market, there was quite a boost in the share price. I think people have begun to look at that and, and actually thinking, well, it means that other um, uh, Whistle could actually put its investment into other areas of competition. Uh, and maybe that sort of short-term boost wasn't really, uh, wasn't really um, uh, a better, uh, showing a good value for Royal Mail. Moving on to National Grid, a very heavily regulated industry, Bob. But people like it for the income, though, don't they? Yeah, it, it's all it's all about the dividend because uh, we know over five year cycles uh, uh, how much they've got to spend and how much profit they're going to uh, they're going to make, and therefore what the dividend's going to be. Uh, if they make uh, less or more profit, if they make less profit than they, were, they thought they were going to, that's because they've uh, mucked things up. If they make prof- more profits, because they're, they're efficient, people like it for that. Uh, National Grid is all about investing tens of billions of pounds over a five year. Uh, cycle to make our uh, electricity and gas, gas, ne- gas ne- networks more sustainable. That cycle doesn't apply really so much to Babcock or Kinetic, does it really? Uh, absolutely. certainty. No, absolutely not. I mean, Babcock and Kinetic is all, uh, they're not exactly all, but uh, a lot about uh, defence spending. They're, they're reliant on the UK and uh, uh, US government spending money. 
After the election, uh, there was a, a nice uh, spike in Babcock share price because uh, there seemed to be some certainty over... Uh, spending on, say, uh, the nuclear submarines, but also that a, a Conservative government would carry on spending on in, in defence. Babcock's an interesting animal in that it has heavily been reliant on Ministry of Defence work in the past, uh, but they've seen which way the uh, the wind is blowing on this, and they're trying to do more uh, stuff in the commercial and civil sector. Um, and that's where the upside is for them. Uh, they're, they're a company always worth keeping an eye on in terms of what contracts they are winning. Uh, they're still winning a lot of defence contracts, but it's the, it's the civil and commercial side of things that we need to look for uh, from them. In, in terms of Kinetic, um, they're another privatised company. The Defence Research came out of the Ministry of Defence. They too are trying to actually break ground into civil and commercial markets. It's been quite difficult for them. Uh, they're one of those great, brilliant, boffin entrepreneurial firms, but they actually need people, countries or companies to spend money. That's what they're reliant on. Do they want to work for you know, airplane manufacturers, that kind of stuff. Yeah, but. yeah, and stuff in cyberspace. Um, mm-hmm. There's there, there's a lot to play for. I mean, BAE Systems is another great example where uh, they often talk about their, uh, their their jewel in the crown is their is their cyberspace work. Now up to about ten percent of BAE's uh, revenues. I think. Thanks very much indeed for that, Bob. And you can check out all those results and, of course, many more and the latest breaking stories as they happen on our Business Now Live blog. That's the business page of our website. And don't forget, Time subscribers can also sign up to our daily morning and lunchtime emails so you can keep up to date with all the news wherever you are. And if you don't have a subscription, you can get one easily enough. There's a special £1 offer by going to thetimes.co.uk. My thanks to Robert Lee, Andrew Clark and Philip Aldrich, and you can follow them all on Twitter. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.